Hey y'all, it's your host Brandon here with a little heads up. Do the Work is a show that deals with heavy and at times traumatic moments around race and racism. So if you don't have the emotional space to hear these discussions right now, that's okay. You can always come back to this episode whenever you are ready. We hope that you take care of you. Oh, and one more thing. Sometimes we use adult language in this podcast, so if you got kids nearby, you might want to grab your headphones. All right, now let's get started. Growing up, did you ever have a time where you felt like you were a bit of an outsider? I know I did. For some of us, that feeling may have cast a shadow over most or even all of our childhood. Maybe you were a book nerd, or a a drama geek like me, or the only brown kid in your class. And then, do you remember how good it felt the first time that you found a community? A place where you really fit in, where you felt supported with people who truly understood you. For queer folks, finding our people, finding our community, Finding our chosen family is a vital part of life. It's just one important step on our journey to feeling whole and accepted in the world. Because for some queer people, it can be difficult to embrace ourselves with pride. But sometimes, especially for LGBTQIA people of color, that community that felt like home can break our hearts. You're listening to Do The Work, a show that untangles the uncomfortable, offensive, and sometimes downright racist moments that happen in our personal relationships. I'm your host, Brandon Kyle Goodman. Today on the season finale of Do The Work, can you believe it? We hear from Mumtaz and Alexander and examine the struggle for racial equality within the queer community. That's next. Welcome back, y'all. Let's get to know our pair today. Mumtaz is a non-binary South Asian Muslim person in their 50s who uses the pronouns they, them. Alex is a 23-year-old indigenous two-spirit trans man who uses the pronouns he, they. Sometimes you may hear Alex refer to Mumtaz by another name, Imtiaz, which is their masculine name. They both live on the west coast of Canada. Mumtaz, who lives in Vancouver now, spent more than 20 years living in Surrey, a city that's part of the Vancouver metro area. And it's in Surrey that Mumtaz met Alex about three years ago. Alex remembers that night well. It was definitely a drag show night. And I was just really drawn to them. Alex is a drag king, meaning unlike a drag queen, they put on a male-presenting performance. Alex dresses in punk attire and has even performed as Jack Skellington from Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. When they first met, Mumtaz noticed Alex instantly. And I was enamored by them uh, as a young trans person. 
and Alex was stunned by Mumtaz's outfit because, honey, it sounds fierce. They were wearing a sari, and it was yellow, but saris are generally worn by um, people who identify as uh, female or feminine. And they have a, a beard as well. So the contrast between the sari and the beard and just, it really tied together and it, I don't know, it sparked something in me. Mumtaz and Alex started talking and really hit it off. And they became fast friends, even though they came from very different upbringings and had different coming out experiences. Alex grew up in Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. Now, it's home to a large First Nations population. Alex is Métis Cree, but living in Nanaimo wasn't always easy. I did experience racism as a kid. I was called derogatory things. I was called a a dirty Indian and uh, other things. I was also called, like, very derogatory gay terms. I wasn't able to get the exposure to the LGBTQ community that I really kind of needed when I was younger. So I grew up unknowing of anyone else who felt the same way that I did. Alex knew that they were different and struggled to find acceptance as a queer person. When I first came out as transgender, Transgender was definitely um, not quite well received from a lot of my family. A lot of them didn't really believe me and, of course, said it was a phase. But my mom said it was a phase when I was growing up uh, queer. So, yeah, it, it wasn't well received except for my fiancé. At age 19, things got even more difficult for Alex when they became pregnant. I was in a really dark place, um, emotionally, mentally. I had just given birth and I was having an identity crisis uh, right after I gave birth to my son. And uh, I didn't feel right in my body. And I realized that I never felt right in my body growing up. So it was very, very difficult for me. Um, For the first few months, I would cry myself to sleep and wake up crying, thinking or saying, am I a guy? What's going to happen if I come out? Because the possibility of being thrown out on the street and being ostracized from my family is a very real thing that happens with a lot of transgender people. And I was scared that... I was basically going to be thrown out and not ever be able to see my son again. So it was very scary for me. In addition to being a trans man, Alex also identifies as queer and two-spirit. And if you want to learn more about what it means to be two-spirit, you can check out our previous episode with two-spirit activist Sharente Harris. For Alex, being two-spirit means... I have two spirits in me, basically. It can have an individual meaning uh, for anyone who is Aboriginal or Native American. Um, I myself am Métis Cree. So to me, it, it basically means... I feel like there's a masculine side to me 
and there's also a feminine side to me. It's like having two spirits in you, but one is masculine and another is feminine. Alex and their partner eventually left Nanaimo for Surrey and found a queer community where they felt welcomed. And it's in Surrey where Alex met Mumtaz. Mumtaz is South Asian but was born in Tanzania and East Africa. They moved to Canada when they were nine years old. And their coming out process started about 30 years ago. I came out as gay in the 90s, and, but I was really closeted and I didn't even come out to my folks until quite recently. I had problems anyhow with my family uh, in terms of trying to fit in and things like that. But just bringing that on uh, was just really kind of daunting. Mumtaz lived under the radar for years. But when they fell in love, things changed. When I first got engaged to a man, uh, I changed my status on Facebook to engaged. And uh, my family found out that I was engaged. So my niece came to me at that time since uh, she calls me Chacha. She goes, Chacha, do you have something to say? And I said, yeah, I got engaged. And, and she said, who is he? <laughs> and my family kind of knew. I just wasn't out to them, but that, I, that's when I came out. It was when I outed myself, uh, changing my status on Facebook as being engaged. Mumtaz's family has been supportive. And both Alex and Mumtaz found a strong queer community in Surrey, which has helped them both along the way. I have a lot of friends um, who I met through Surrey Pride, and I was able to connect more with people who were like me and people who accepted me for who I am completely. They are my chosen family, and they've helped me through a lot, and I have a very sense of community with them. Now, I know what you must be thinking. What's the issue with Mumtaz and Alex? They seem like great friends, and they are. Their conflict here isn't with each other. Uh Uh-uh. For this episode, we're doing things a little different. Today, we're going to explore their conflict with the Surrey Pride group that once felt like home. It was 2018, and Surrey Pride was gearing up to celebrate its 20th anniversary. Mumtaz wanted to get involved in hopes of bringing more diversity from communities of color to the celebration. I went to the annual general meeting and uh, there was an election and I put my name forward and I was elected. So I curated a a program for Surrey Pride 20. It was a program of um, writers, of short stories and poetry and song as part of that. And I curated that program and that was very diverse. A year before, the neighboring Pride group in the city of Vancouver had announced that it would not include the police in its annual celebration. It was a show of solidarity to the Black Lives Matter movement and all queer people who have faced police violence. This stand that the Vancouver group took resonated with Alex and Mumtaz in a deep way. But Mumtaz was deeply troubled to find out that the Surrey Pride president at the time took a reverse position and announced that the police would not only be invited to partake in the festivities, but would be celebrated on stage. Mumtaz says the Surrey Pride board was not consulted. Instead, Mumtaz says that the group's then president made the decision on his own. Own. So I didn't even have an opportunity to, to, to challenge that or to refute that. It was a decision that he had made. 
basically wanted to rub it in the face of, of, of Vancouver Pride to saying, oh, we are pro-police and we don't care and we're going to parade uh, our Royal Mounted Canadian Police on the stage of Pride and dance and celebrate with us. You've probably seen the Royal Mounted Canadian Police, or RCMP, on TV or in movies. They're the Canadian law enforcement officers in those red uniforms with the big hats and wide leg pants. Well, that was the law enforcement group that the board president at the time decided to include in Pride. And this decision upset a lot of people, including Alex. He was the one who did all of this stuff and said that RCMP should be allowed to perform in Pride. He himself, a white cisgender man. He's gay, but he's not a minority as much as we are. He has his rights and he has his privileges and he doesn't see how much that hurts us or he just doesn't care. When Alex saw the RCMP officers on stage dancing and singing, they were devastated. There's a very big history between the RCMP um, and the First Nations community and just people of color in general were very ostracized here. It brought up a lot of hurt and pain for me. It brought up all of the years of colonialism and the genocide that happened upon my people and people of color in general. And it broke something in me and I got, I broke down. I had to walk away and go somewhere else because it was, it was too much. Both Alex and Mumtaz and many of their friends have had negative interactions with the police, which is one of the many reasons they did not want officers celebrated at the event. Many years ago, I was part of a group of a bunch of brown queers going on a picnic, and um, we had this toy gun, and somebody saw one of us in this, this gun, uh, you know, uh, from a tower, and they called the police, and multiple police cars came screeching, stopping us, and, and, and pointed guns at us, uh, put, telling us, you know, to put up our hands. I have friends and people um, who have experienced police brutality um, on mental wellness checks because they were not in a good place in their heads and they were suicidal. And they were both uh, dragged and beaten. One suffered, um, suffered a lot of damage to her face. She, um, her eye was red and bloody. Um, and this, and she was kicked uh, multiple times in the ribs repeatedly, as well as in the head by a female police officer, and this was in Vancouver. And beyond their personal experiences with the police, Mumtaz says it's important to recognize the historical roots of what pride represents. People forget that the, what the, the, the start of pride was Stonewall, which was a riot against the police. It was a riot against the police brutality. That's been our history. And then to bring the police in without having them have apologized for what they've done um, as a celebration of pride is is a disconnect to me. At the Surrey Pride 20th anniversary event, 
they approached one of the uniformed RCMP officers and spoke up. You know, very respectful, um, uh, and I listened to her speak, and then I, I spoke to her and said that I had issues with the RCMP, with the Surrey police, and, and I wasn't very happy with that. And we had a conversation, and, 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 and she asked me why, and I said, well, you know, because the, the police in Canada, including the RCMP, who are the colonial police of, this, of the state, uh, and they were a tool of colonization. You know, I, I, my grandfather comes from India, which is also colonized by the British. So I see an affinity between indigenous people and ours that we have that co- common colonial history. And I see that RCMP are, are part of that colonial history. But as, as, as a queer person, I, I found that it was important that the police have never apologized for the treatment of, uh, for uh, the, uh, gay lesbian people in Canada. That could have been it. Mumtaz had shared their feelings in a respectful manner and was ready to move on. But then they got a phone call. It was the board's then-president. Reprimanding me, saying that, you know, how dare you have that conversation with, 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 with them? And they said, no, you, you cannot do that. And, and uh, you're a representative uh, of the board, and you have to uphold the, the, the decision and the position of the board. And said, well, we have never had a decision whatever. I was my position. I wasn't representing the board as such. I was representing myself. But I was reprimanded for that. That was the last straw. Mumtaz's term on the Surrey Pride Board was supposed to run for a year, but they stepped down months early, right after the Pride event. I didn't want anything more to do with Surrey Pride because of what had happened and because, and I, th- I just thought that was a very offensive. I don't feel I, I have any space or place there, and I'm, I don't see it as being representative anymore, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I've realized now that I'm not the only one who feels that way. And hearing what had happened to Mumtaz was really hard on Alex, too. I was really depressed when I found out all of these things because I felt that I found a community of people who really cared and people who really gave a shit. And it's like it was being ripped away from me. We were... We were helping something. We were a part of something bigger than ourselves. And that meant something to me. And to have it ripped away or tainted by disgusting comments and ideals like that really, really just threw me over the edge. Coming up, we talk with Preston Mitchum, a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center, who teaches LGBT health law and policy. We'll dive into the history of police brutality towards queer people and the ways the LGBTQIA community centers whiteness. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back, y'all. Now, I want to unpack a few of the reasons why Mumtaz and Alex thought it was so offensive to have the police celebrated at their community pride event. It's not just their own personal experiences with law enforcement that have shaped their thinking. Uh Uh-uh. It's the entire history of the LGBTQIA plus movement for equality. It's a history that a lot of folks seem to forget 
including, it seems, the Surrey Pride Board. That's why my producers called up Preston Mitchum. He's a Black queer man, a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center, who teaches LGBT health law and policy. And he's the policy director at the nonprofit justice group Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. Preston says that while it's important we all celebrate pride and relish in the victories we've won, we can't lose sight of what got us here. As we're celebrating pride, we should not forget about the history. Uh, That history is deeply connected to anti-police violence. We cannot forget the history of what so many queer and trans people of color did so we can celebrate that history. You might be familiar with one of the most well-known moments in the fight for queer liberation, the Stonewall Uprising of the late 1960s, which took place in New York's Greenwich Village. And if y'all don't already know, you know I'm here to educate you, this momentous uprising had everything to do with police brutality. See, back in 1969, it was illegal to hold hands, kiss, or dance in a romantic way with a person of the same sex in public. And since the Stonewall Inn was a queer sanctuary, it was frequently targeted by law enforcement. On June 28, 1969, the police raided the bar and violently arrested the club's patrons. But the people at the bar were sick and tired of how they were being treated, so they fought back. It's thought that Marsha P. Johnson, a black trans woman, threw the first brick at police during the Stonewall Raid, and Stormé Delavier, a black lesbian, threw the first fist. But Preston says while this may be the most well-known uprising carried out by queer folks, it was certainly not the first. Ten years before Stonewall, so a decade earlier in 1959, Cooper Donuts riot was a small uprising that happened in Los Angeles, California, in response to police harassment. And then seven years after that, in 1966, there was Compton Cafeteria, where LGBTQ people and, and largely trans individuals in particular fought back against police violence after so much anti-trans harassment. And then a year after that, in 1967, so that's two years before Stonewall, uh, the LAPD entered what's called the Black Cat Tavern um, as undercover police officers, and they started beating patrons as they were ringing in the new year. And so though police now march with us as pride, there's a decades-long history of over-policing of our community. And these raids are not simply a thing of the past. We need to be abundantly clear in that. Preston is right. Back in June, yes, June 2020, y'all, an LGBTQ bar called Blazing Saddles in Des Moines, Iowa, was raided by the police. The bar's co-owner, Brian Smith, said patrons were trying to provide first aid to demonstrators who had been out in the street protesting the murder of George Floyd. And so, you know, in, in so many recounts, Mr. Smith said that police arrived with their weapons drawn and ordered everyone out at gunpoint. And they claimed that they were protecting the bar. But again, we're trying to figure out how that's the case, right? Um, These raids and subsequent protests against police violence and discrimination are what started what we popularly refer to as pride, of course. But it's clear we have a long way to go. And so... These demonstrations and and vocal dissent of law enforcement 
invading our public spaces should not be forgotten because, again, it's not just something that happened in the 1950s, in the 60s, in the 70s, and the 80s, in the 2000s, in the 2010s. It's something that happens, again, as we know, this year. But beyond the egregious police assaults that LGBTQIA establishments face, queer people of color, queer black and brown bodies, are still regularly threatened by the police in ways that white queer people are simply not. Race impacts how police either arrest us or decide to not arrest us. It impacts how the prosecutors decide to charge us. So LGBTQ people of color are impacted from arrest to prosecution to sentencing. And that does not happen in a same or similar way as white queer people. So we need to really, again, start listening true to intersectionality. We need to start listening to the most marginalized communities because only then will people start to really see who is impacted more often than not. Now, as a queer non-binary person myself, I have seen firsthand how even the LGBTQIA community is not an equal playing field. I've experienced situations with my white queer brothers, sisters, siblings, reminiscent of what Mumtaz and Alex faced within the Siri Pride community. And Preston has an excellent explanation for why the voices and concerns of queer people of color are often ignored. If we're going to be completely honest, everything in the world centers whiteness. And I think that's true, especially in the LGBT community, especially when it comes to white cis men. White cis men, in my experience, both personal and professional, oftentimes want to control everything. Um, That means bodies. That means narratives. That means policy change. That means mass mobilization. So, you know, I, I don't say lightly that whiteness, irrespective of sexuality, wants to control everything. I think, however, there's something that's particularly um, compounded when sexuality is involved, especially in a movement where we should be centering and honoring people of color who also are queer and trans and non-binary. Preston says that the modern movement for queer equality has largely been driven and centered around the needs of white cisgender queer people, and especially white cis gay men, despite the efforts and ongoing struggles of black and brown LGBTQIA plus people. When we think about the movement for equality for LGBTQIA people, let's think about what movement predominated and what topic predominated the past decade or so? It was marriage equality. And it wasn't just because the LGBTQ community suddenly decided that marriage equality was the thing we all needed to focus on. It was because namely wealthier white cis white gay men decided through their funding that we needed to focus on marriage equality. Now, Preston doesn't want to see marriage equality go away. Uh Uh-uh, honey. But the point that Preston is trying to make here is that while having the right to freely marry is important and a basic human right, there are real questions of survival that queer people of color are still grappling with, especially as it relates to the criminal justice system or employment discrimination 
or access to health care. We can get to thriving later. What's the purpose of marriage equality when I can walk out of my house right now and be gunned down by the police? What's the purpose of marriage equality if I'm a trans man and I actually can't even, you know, have the full reproductive health care needs that I need for me to live? What's the purpose of marriage equality when, when I enter a clinical setting, I'm still experiencing a hostile provider because they don't really understand my gender identity or my sexuality? What's the purpose? And so if you talk to many Black and Brown queer people and trans people and non-binary people, they, and we would just tell you that marriage was not the first thing that would change our life. And this is not to say that marriage equality is not important. Be clear. However, there is also something to be said around why that was the thing that predominated and who determined that that was the thing that that should take dominance because it wasn't queer and trans people of color. There were so many things that we wanted to take dominance and control. And, and, and again, they just weren't present because many people completely erased our experiences and they did it so they could actually dominate the narrative. And so I'm going to plainly state that white cis men, white, white queer cis men have a long way to go to actually honoring and being accountable to queer trans and non-binary people of color. And honoring queer people of color starts by listening to them. And that's what Mumtaz and Alex wanted. They wanted their concerns, their fears, and their feelings to be heard by the Surrey Pride community. But Preston says in order for that to happen, white queer folks have some work to do. And that work starts with this simple realization. If you are a white queer person and all you focus on is being queer, and how much you're discriminated against or disadvantaged by straight people, then you're not really giving yourself the time and the intention to explore how you harm other people because you're so hyper-focused on being harmed yourself. And it's because, you know, the idea is I'm oppressed too. And it's like, yes, but you may not understand intersectionality because in the grand scheme of things, the world still operates around whiteness. Preston Mitchum is a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center who teaches LGBT health law and policy. And he's the policy director at the nonprofit justice group Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. And I thank him so much for sharing his expertise today. Coming up, we reached out to the former president of the Surrey Pride Board to ask him about his decision to include the police at the group's 20th anniversary celebration. We'll tell you what he said. But first, I'll talk to our in-house educator, Debbie Irving, for the last time this season. That's next. Hey, y'all, before we jump back into our episode, I want to invite you to be part of our show. If you want to be a guest on this podcast, email us your story at do the work at threeuncanny4.com with the numbers spelled out. So that's do the work at threeuncanny4.com and tell us your story. Or you can call us with your story. 
drop me a line at 973-922-3345. That's 973-922-3345. And now let's get back to the show. Hey everybody, I am so glad you stayed with me. Now today we're doing things a bit differently. You see, we invited the former president of the Suri Pride Board to come on the show to talk with Mumtaz and Alex, or even just with me. But he declined. As we've been saying all season, these conversations about race are hard. These discussions push us outside of our comfort zones. And not everyone is ready to go to these difficult and sometimes awkward places that challenge our assumptions and beliefs. We did receive a statement from the former Surrey Pride Board president, which we'll share with you in a bit. But first, I wanted to have one last discussion this season with Debbie Irving, our in-house educator and the author of Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. As a white person who has done the work and continues to do it in her own life, I wanted Debbie to share some reflections on Mumtaz and Alex's story and provide some takeaways for all of us as we wrap up our season. Hey, Debbie. How you doing? I'm a little sad because this is our last conversation. I know. It's flown by. I feel like we've accomplished quite a bit and uh, been on a little roller coaster. But let's jump into this last pair, shall we? Let's do it. So what was your reaction to learning about Mumtaz's and Alex's story? I think as I thought more about it, I thought that it's not about police or no police. It's Mm. about are we able to get into a process as a group when that group contains uh, multiple identities. Mm. And that's where this group got snagged, in my opinion. And it's really common. I understood the the desire to not have the police there. And I was kind of shocked that the board didn't at least have an awareness of that. Didn't understand. I don't know if I was shocked, um, but uh, disappointed and disheartened because you can't ignore uh, the relationship between Black people and the police, Black queer people and the police, and queer people in general and the police. So I was just kind of... um, disheartened that that Mumtaz and Alex had to even bring it up. Do you know? I do. Yeah. That A, they had to bring it up, and that B, once they did bring it up, it wasn't a, oh, wow, thanks for pointing that out to us. Yeah. I mean, this is what we've been talking about all season. It really is, to me, a a flex of privilege. Being queer, um, something that I continue to come up against is that uh, white queer people— tend to, and I'm going to make a gross generalization, but in my experience, there's a feeling that because you're queer, you are exempt from doing the work of acknowledging where else you have privilege. Because you're oppressed in the queer category, there's no acknowledgement of how your black and brown and Asian uh, brothers and sisters might be um, oppressed or acknowledgement of how your trans siblings or non-binary. It's kind of like, yeah, we're all We all feel it. And that's not the case. And it's not a competition. This is why it's always such a tricky thing to talk about. It's not a competition of who's the most oppressed. Uh, I think we, each of us, have privilege in different categories. And we have to, as we fight for our freedoms, 
also recognize where we have privilege and how to use that privilege. Right. And I I think it's, you know, the process isn't just how do we acknowledge and leverage our privilege, but how might our privilege have created blind spots for us? Mm, Yeah. This is a blind spot. I can't say enough about how I see this all the time. I don't want to switch to women. I just want to use this as an example. Please. In the, in the women's movement, we see time and again that even though black and brown women have driven the women's movement in the United States from the get-go, mm-hmm. white women step in and either really don't know what their black and brown sisters have been doing um, right. or do know and just think they can do a better job and take over. You know, we saw that with the women's movement that inflamed after Donald Trump's 2016 election, you know, the Women's March on Washington. There was a lot of tension around there about, wait a minute, uh, how come white women are suddenly sort of taking this over? Mm-hmm. If this organization were sort of steeped in this solidarity pedagogy, yeah. they would they would have said, okay, who are our most marginalized members? Let's center them in yes. the design of our 20th anniversary. Uh, celebration. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and then you don't leave anybody out. But there is a fear of, there's a fear of losing something. Control. <laughs> like, yes. Power. Yes. So members of the Surrey Pride Board said that the police should be included at the event because 20 plus years ago, the police defended queer people during the city's first Pride gathering. Now, I do have my own thoughts on this, but I want to get your reaction first. I'm thinking about, you know, what must it be like if you start an organization um, and you've been there for 20 years and then newcomers come along Uh and they have different opinions. It, It The white construct would be... Uh, and I say white meaning the culture of whiteness, would be this is mine. This is my organization. Yes. I get to call the shots. Yes. It's mine. I dominate. I control. I choose who's in. I choose who's out. I choose whose opinions matter. I choose whose don't. That's the white model. That's a hierarchical model. And so it's a stretch. We have to learn a different way of being if we want to create a different world We have to create communities that aren't rooted in hierarchy, where there are different ways of making decisions, where not only is it that everybody's voice is heard, but that voices that have historically been not heard maybe even get some extra airtime. And if there's anything that I'm hoping that people take away, it's that no matter what your privilege is or what your oppression is and what whatever that is, can we be able to hold space for our liberation, our personal liberation, while also making sure that we ensure the liberation of others, especially people who are more marginalized than we might be. Right. So we got a statement from the former president of the Surrey Pride Board in response to our invitation to come on the show and, you know, have a conversation with Mumtaz and Alex. So here's what he said. Thank you for the opportunity, but I refrain from commenting on the past. We have all learned from it, and I plan to move forward in my life with my eyes more opened and more aware that others face things that I do not have to as a white, gay, cisgender male. Minority groups should always feel safe to approach others about their concerns proactively. Now, Debbie, when we spoke to Mumtaz, they said that shortly after the 20th anniversary event, they were reprimanded by a member of the Surrey Pride Board for telling one of the officers why they thought the RCMP shouldn't be celebrated at the event. What 
might lead to that kind of response. So whiteness will always protect whiteness. Ha! Say it again, (laughs) Debbie. That's church. Say it again. That shook me. Whiteness will always protect whiteness. Ugh, ain't it true. And whiteness doesn't always mean white people. The thing about um, dominant white culture that we live in and in Western culture in general is that the cultural tools that hold in place hierarchy um, are exactly the wrong tools for creating closely knit um, web-like communities. Mm. So in a hierarchy, I think of myself as a rugged individual. I have to save face. You know, I might not want to admit I'm wrong because I think I'm going to go down a rung or two. Mm. I have to look good. I have to look smart. I have to constantly be protecting my self-image. Um, and my identity can get very wrapped up in that. Yeah. Um, I'm, taught, I'm taught to make decisions quickly. Um, I mean, my God, how much time is it going to take to slow down and have a conversation where we have to bring in Mumtaz and Alex and a couple people from the police force, and I just wanted to plan this damn event and have it over right. and done with. Right. So, you know, <laughs> the kind of transformational <laughs> culture that works to build close-knit communities includes slowing down, centering the voices of those at the margins, mm-hmm. um, you know, caring more about collective well-being than your personal status. I think it's important for all of us as we have these um, nuanced conversations, to also stand down. And what I mean by that is there is such a um, an energy and a desire to be defensive and such an energy to, to reprimand and tell you you're wrong. And there's, there's no space created to have a conversation and maybe have uh, your, your perspective shifted. I think we're so... And I, I have my own experiences with this, where like being so afraid of having your mind changed because it might mean that you were wrong, or you might have to find out that a way that you might have thought about something was harmful, and you get to do better now. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast, right? Do the work. Like that is part of the work is is allowing space to have your perspective shift and not being afraid of that. And so before I let you go, what reflections do you have for our listeners after going on this journey throughout our season? I want to give a major shout out to all the conflict pairs that came on. Mm. Because, you know, that takes a lot of courage. And and that's a courage that's been made in the form of an offering for all of us. So I want to Major shout out to all of the conflict pairs. Yes. And I hope that listeners have noticed how you and I interact. You know, you're not asking me to act like I don't have any racism. Mm. It, we're, we're just being open. Yeah. So I hope that the kind of relationship that you and I have been able to form, that that's something of a model. Yeah. For people, it's totally possible. And what I would like to say about our relationship uh, is what makes it really easy to have a conversation with you, Debbie, is that there's a willingness. And this is what, I'm, I can't get this across enough, but, you know, it's like none of us are looking for white people to be perfect. We're just looking for a willingness to have the conversation, an acknowledgement that what we're saying is true, uh, and in your actions to do the work, you know? And 
every time I leave our conversations, I'm never exhausted. I'm always like buzzed. I'm always on a high because I feel like I've learned stuff and that we were able to really um, go there because of your willingness, right? And that you've never made me feel crazy for sharing my experiences. Uh, And so that's a long-winded way of saying that I hope what people will take away from our relationship is your willingness to do the work and to have the conversations and creating a safe space for me as the person of color to have these conversations. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. You bring this animation and this lived experience Mm. that nothing else offers me. And so the conversations were really the way we thought together. Yes. And the reason we're able to think at the kind of level we're able to think about it is because we're able to talk about it. And the reason we're able to talk about it is we have done our own work. We are doing our own yes. work. Doing our own work. And you can't, and just, you know, taking it from our show to the macro of the world, we really can't make change without each other. I hope that's what our listeners take away is, is, is the value and the importance of the willingness and that we as people of color cannot do it alone. It has to be a joint Agreed. And amen. And thank you for having me on. Yay. Thank you for being here every week. I really, really appreciate you. Debbie Irving is our in-house educator. You can get more from her by grabbing a copy of her book, Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Even though this is the last episode of the season, I hope you continue to do the work in your own lives. If we want to build a better future, it's important to remember we cannot do it alone, but we can do it together. Do the Work is a Three Uncanny Four production. The show is hosted by me, Brandon Kyle Goodman. Our in-house educator is Debbie Irving. Our senior editor is Amy Eason. Our senior producer is TJ Raphael. Our associate producers are Rahima Nasa and Sharina Ong. Catherine Shoemaker is our development producer, and Jenny Kim is our production manager. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. Special thanks to Adam Davidson and Nuna Sharafadine. The show was mixed by Joanna Katcher at Nice Manners. Ava Amabehi is our fact checker, and Elishaba Itoup created the theme. If you like the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. And hey, why not leave a rating and a comment while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Or better yet, tell somebody about us, honey. And if you want to have your own story featured on the show, email us at do the work at 3 uncannycom That's with the numbers spelled out. So do the work at 3 uncannycom Now, I hope y'all are taking care of yourselves as we deal with these heavy conversations. One self-care tip from me is feed yourself something delicious. I know we're always on a rush. We're moving really fast. And so we eat, 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 gobble, gobble, gobble. But... Sometimes it's nice to light a candle, pull out the good silverware, and have yourself a delicious meal, whether it's something you made or you order, but taking time to really feed your body something tasty. You won't regret it. 
Oh, and one more thing. We're putting some handy resources on our website in case y'all want to do some reading up on the topics we talk about in the show. So you can find that at dotheworkpod.com. For 3 Uncanny 4, I'm Brandon Kyle Goodman. Until next time, you can find me on the gram at Brandon K. Good. Thanks for listening.